Hi, everyone. It's Jivana. I just want to come on for a moment and thank our sponsor, Offering Tree. They're an all-in-one, easy-to-use, community-backed business that saves you time, energy, and money as a yoga teacher. Offering Tree allows you to create a website in less than 30 minutes. Plus, you get a discount through Accessible Yoga. Just go to offeringtree.com backslash accessible yoga to get your discount today. Okay, here's our episode. Welcome to the Love of Yoga podcast. I'm your host, Anjali Rao. This podcast explores the teachings of yoga for self and collective transformation. We dive into how spirituality and philosophy can ignite social change. I share conversations with folks who are on the front lines of justice and liberatory movements, thought leaders, change makers, and healers. everyone and a very warm welcome to the Love of Yoga podcast. I'm your host Anjali Rao and my pronouns are she, her and I'm really, really excited to share this particular conversation with you all. Uh, uh, with us today is Erica Woodland, the co-editor of uh, Healing Justice Lineages and just a thought leader in uh, movement and liberatory work. Erica Woodland is a facilitator, consultant, a psychotherapist, and a healing justice practitioner with more than 20 years of experience working at the intersections of movements for racial, gender, economic, trans, and queer justice. In the anthology, Healing Justice Lineages, that Erica co-edited with Cara Page, we are led with stunning brilliance through the history, legacies, and liberatory practices of healing justice which is a political strategy of collective care and safety that intervenes on generational trauma from systemic violence and oppression. I have to say that this book is accelerating to read, and I'm still in the process of digesting what I've read because it is so rich and informative. In fact, Erica and Cage, Kara, uh, sorry, invite us to pause often and go back to the book when we are ready and we have metabolized it. I really, really appreciated this approach because that is so um, in in sort of alignment with the teachings of yoga, which talk talk us through the importance of pausing and processing as often as possible and really understanding where we are in our nervous system. So I really appreciated this approach of Erica. In fact, I want to talk about so many parallels that I found uh, in the philosophy and the teachings of yoga and healing justice as a framework. This book is laden with hope because it offers us solutions. It offers us teachings from the past of our history, of movement history. And um, it's something that we are all, at least I know I am desperately in need of right now. So a, a very strongly felt, heartfelt thank you. And welcome to this podcast, Erica. It is such an honor to have you with us as a guest. Thank you so much. I want to begin at the beginning, uh, Erica. What was your journey, your path into your work? I love this question because how I understand this question is, is to really situate myself inside of the lineage and to understand myself as part of generations of resistance and healing work. Mm -hmm. um, and so 
I want to name my primary teachers first before I get into some of the like chronology. Um, I came into this work by way of my mother, Michelle Woodland, who's an ancestor um, and whose tenacity around care and protection for her children as a single black woman, keeping kids alive in the 80s and 90s in Baltimore City. Um, she modeled for me something that I didn't see a lot of other places, which is uh, the amount of sacrifice that it takes to take care of your people at all costs. And I learned early on that capitalism was an entire scam and a lie because I was like, oh, capitalism says if you work hard, American dream is right there. And I watched this beautiful woman. Um, and then I learned that this is also a story that's true of other Black women in my family. I watched her work herself to the bone to keep us alive. Um, and, you know, I was simultaneously around super privileged people who didn't do any work at all and just got things handed to them. Um, and so this kind of like ethos around care and protection and that being like very, very primary in our work and in our relationships, I learned that from her. Um, and I was very uh, pissed off as a little one. Just injustice is just like going to continue to be unacceptable to me. And so I would say things all the time, like lots of rebel browsers do. This isn't fair. Um, and I watched the impacts um, on her and her life. And um, I'm forever grateful for what she taught me. Mm. The other teacher I want to call into the space, mentor, revolutionary, Marshall Eddie Conway, former Black Panther, former political prisoner, recent ancestor, and we're approaching the one year anniversary of his transition. And I met him in my early 20s when I was getting politicized around abolition and starting to do harm reduction work. Um, and he taught me a lot about history. He taught me also a lot about the revolutionary sacrifice that's connected to love and struggle. Um, and he taught me a lot about some of the trappings and burdens of like holding the kind of leadership that especially black folks from his generation had to hold. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm so grateful for him because he was very open and gracious and generous with me in terms of his teachings and his wisdom. And that was all that was through his words, but it was primarily through his actions and the love and intention that he brought and just like commitment, like he was a, a, an unbreakable and is an unbreakable kind of spirit. Um, and so I call on him often in these times. Mm. Wonderful. And, uh, you know, I just really appreciate that you name your teachers in the beginning. Um, that again is so many, uh, like I said, so many parallels to the the teachings that we, that yoga uh, brings in. We always name our teachers first. And the first essay, in fact, which you penned for the anthology is about collective memory. And I think this whole summoning of our ancestors, summoning of our teachers is a part, I would think, of that collective memory. You talk about the legacy of resistance and how important it is for us to understand the history of these movements. And as an avid student of history, um, I love that you rooted us into that as lessons for building movements and healing. Why do you think that this sort of remembering, this sort of recollection is important for us? So I want to just call in uh, Kara Page and, and her work around collective memory, because that um, 
her body of work has been really central to my understanding of the importance of memory work inside of healing justice. And so check out Kara's work with Changing Frequencies and the Healing Histories Project, which is really about um, thinking about how we don't play into systems of domination by cutting off parts of ourselves, right? And so um, for us with the book and for those chapters in the past section, we're really grappling with um, the nonlinear nature of time. Mm -hmm. um, we're also really grappling with the fact that this kind of disconnect between us and our ancestors or the disconnect between care and political liberation, these things are relatively recent um, when we think about it. Um, you know, I can go back a couple of generations and be like, oh, some of the things that, that felt like they were totally lost to me actually aren't. Um, and so what does it mean to believe in the possibility that so much more is recoverable, right? Mm -hmm. And that actually that recovery and that memory is not going to necessarily happen in the non-spiritual realm, right? Um, if we're talking about spirit, you can transcend space and time, right? Mm -hmm. Talking about ancestors, you can transcend space and time. And I've seen that in my own life. I've seen that in my own practice. Um, but most importantly, forgetting and disconnection, that is a tool of white supremacy. And it's been quite successful. So when we intentionally go back and reclaim, ethically go back and reclaim, um, build right relationship with the folks who came before us. Um, it just gives us more access to power, to resources, and it decenters us. So, as somebody who was born and raised in this treacherous ass United States, we are deeply self centered, selfish, and um, do not understand how we've been infused with individualism, even when we're trying not to. Um, I've been grateful to get a few opportunities to leave the country. It's really quite humbling because you're like, oh, right, you're inside of an empire. Um, and so we also go back and remember to situate ourselves as one small part of this huge project of getting free together um, and to make sure that we're understanding ourselves in this moment in history and what we can contribute. Mm, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I'm an, I, I come from India, so... Um, we have a very sort of a different outlook to um, which is getting rapidly homogenized right now because yes. of empire and capitalism. But yes. but I grew up with this notion that we are a part of a big, big collective and that collective is family, that collective is community, that collective is neighborhoods, you know, those things. Um, and to really decenter ourselves is it comes naturally to me uh, but i don't i see that sometimes can also be uh, sort of taken against you like it mm. because it is such an individualistic culture here yes. uh, to it, it it's seen as some somewhat of uh, a negative thing that if you are not mm -hmm. talking about what you do it you're not talking about only yourself or positioning yourself as the leader of a mm -hmm. organization or the leader of something you're really not given that much importance how would you hold that tension especially for you know you as a black person me as a you know uh indian uh immigrant mm -hmm. how would you hold that tension in a white supremacist culture where we have to sort of quote unquote take up space and yeah. yet be a part of a collective effort? I love this question. Um, it reminds me of like a kind of a regular practice I come to around humility, because mm -hmm. for a long time, I thought humility was about kind of hiding the strengths that I have or hiding the blessings that I have. Yeah. And I've come into really 
a clear knowing that humility is about my ability to shine in the ways that I need to shine and encourage other people to also do that shining. So mm. to remember that um, my ancestors fought and died for things that I have access to right now. And that is like, I, that's a blessing. So yeah. why squander that blessing by um, making myself small? But it's not about me as an individual. So that's also why I name the people who have taught me. I name the people I'm in relationship with. I'm here today talking about HJ lineages, but Kara's here with me and all the contributors to the book. Um, and it is it is a tension. It's not to be resolved. It's just to be um, worked with. And, and it's a deep, deep teacher for me. Mm -hmm. I think that it's super complicated because there are times where we for our survival, we might have to move in ways that kind of mirror white supremacist capitalist culture, but that is a survival strategy. That's not me, right? Mm. Um, and I think that we need to think about who we're accountable to. Like, that's the question I come back to over and over again is that I'm accountable to people and the people I'm accountable to, I did not wake up and say I wanted to write a book or be part of an anthology. I don't even think of myself as a writer. And so how I got to this project was the ancestors tapping me very <laughs> forcefully on the shoulder, being like, you need to do this. Mm -hmm. um, and community saying, we need something, like give us something to help orient and ground us during these times. And so I said yes to that, but it's, it's with a lot of discomfort. I don't mind being visible. I don't mind being of service in my own community queer and trans people, black, indigenous and people of color, of sick and disabled people. I don't mind that. I am not very interested in kind of being visible in the mainstream because of how people act <laughs> and how they treat black, queer and trans people. It's like, no, no, no. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I completely appreciate that. And thank you for naming that, that we are always working with that tension. And sometimes we have to move in ways which feel like it's in uh, in tangential sort of relationship with white supremacy, but it's really not, it's really not that. We're doing that only to uh, survive and be seen. And then we, that accountability piece of it is really important. Uh, so thank you for naming that. I also want to like, just, you know, there are people here probably listening who don't know much about what healing justice means and who are curious and who are also curious about the abolitionist approach, something that I have recently begun to really delve into and explore uh, based on based on my own, um, you know, disillusionment with, uh, with the world in general. Um, so can you please share some sort of some sort of the foundational premises and the ways in which we can engage with this framework, given who we are in the world today? So first, I want to just name that healing justice as a concept was gifted to us and co-architect by Kara Page and Kindred Southern Healing Justice Collective in the mid-2000s. It comes directly out of movement. It comes directly in response to seeing how state violence um, and community interpersonal violence and just the um, trauma that organizers encounter when confronting the state, how that affects us spiritually, emotionally, environmentally, psychically physically and so forth. And for me, you know, when I came to Healing Justice, I was like, oh, wow, this framework is expansive enough to hold all these different parts of me that I don't know how, didn't know how to integrate in my work. 
Mm. Um, but healing justice really thinks and kind of refers to the ways that our peoples have always had strategies around care and resilience and resistance and survival. Mm. And that predates the early 2000s. That's ancestral, that's our birthright. Um, and so for the re- some of the reason that we wrote the book is that there's been some conflation around healing justice and self-care or even healing justice and healing more broadly. And so healing justice is a political framework. It's a political framework that seeks to build collective power so that we are healing, not so we can be healed. I want to be healed, believe me, or I want to move towards healing. It's a destination we'll never reach. And more importantly, we want to change the conditions that are leading to our suffering. Mm -hmm. So I'm a mental health practitioner. I'm a therapist. You know, one version of therapy is training people to cope with the unacceptable. Another mm-hmm. version of my work is supporting people to come back into their power and into the work they're here to do so we can get free together. Mm-hmm. So do I want to learn to cope with white supremacy or do I want to learn to abolish white supremacy? Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are some of the distinctions that are really important. I think the piece on abolition is, is so central um, because for us, this comes from a lineage of abolition that goes back to the abolition of slavery. So the, the current conversation around abolition, which is very much tied to that work, is about the abolishment of prison and policing and in all of its myriad of forms. We're talking about the prison industrial complex. Um, we're also talking about the medical industrial complex as an extension of state control and coercion. Um, and the all these words I just said, they're huge. They're concepts yeah. that you could spend your whole life studying. Like if this, I, I, I guess what I want to offer is like, this is not a simple framework, right? It's a framework that is continuing to humble me with how much I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's, it's real serious business. And so the abolition piece is key because we are not going to put forth any intervention that reinforces surveillance, that reinforces any kind of policing, whether that's soft police like social workers or the actual police. Um, and we cannot talk about healing justice outside of the other movements and political frameworks that it is in deep relationship to. And those frameworks are disability justice, environmental justice, reproductive justice, transformative justice, and harm reduction. And we, since writing the book, have been gifted the framework of liberatory harm reduction from Shir Hassan, a a deep comrade of ours, to really, like, basically take back harm reduction from the state. So Mm. it's a lot. And the book is a good place to start. And it's, like, kind of offering you places where you could pick your own adventure and and become an entire nerd on a topic like the medical industrial complex, if that's your thing. Absolutely. You know, I've been looking, you know, what the thing that I've been like really uh, interested in is intentional communities where we are, where we can really have courageous conversations uh, because I do think that we may not know the solutions. In fact, we won't, uh, but we are, we are asking the questions. We are asking good questions, intentional questions and courageous questions. And so I think that itself is like one of the most important things that we can do in, in community. And um, 
Which brings me to like sort of the decentralization, which abolition talks about a lot where, you know, it's not the nonprofit industrial complex is one thing also. So um, I appreciate you saying that it is like this expansive thing and it's not one thing and it is definitely not self-care because self-care is such a commodity right now and it has been sucked into the dominant culture. So um, yeah. We're not trying to be better at being in the system. We're trying to just disrupt the system and create right. something different, right? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I really, really appreciate that approach. Um, in in yoga, we talked about, you talked about suffering, Erika. So I want to go back to that, uh, that word that you used, because in yoga, we talk about the inevitability of what we call as dukkha, suffering. Like, you know, all of human experience, uh, there is no matter who you are, there is some level of suffering. And how do we transcend that? How do we hold and how do we uh, eventually, you know, transform that, metabolize that? That is what the practice and the teachings of yoga is about. So I want to ask you, what does healing mean to you? And uh, not only in terms of, I mean, obviously using the framework that you are such a big part of, uh, what and how has that evolved for you? Has that changed for you? What does that really mean for you? This is a really important question because um, healing is another word that gets kind of thrown, thrown about. Bandied about, um, yeah. I like to start with healing is not for the faint of heart. Um, if, you know, my my current incarnation chose to come here to heal, I have questions, comments, and concerns about that. It's very hard. Mm-hmm. You're becoming undone over and over and over again. So there's this piece about um being able to be with human suffering our own human suffering but also the suffering of all the beings that we're in relationship to healing for me is also about the intersection between how do we integrate the wounds from that suffering uh and metabolize it so that we are moving towards our purpose and our destiny um so i am a practitioner of the lakumi tradition Um, And we talk a lot about ancestors and we talk a lot about destiny. What is the work that you're here to do? I'm also an astrologer. So it's nice to have like a natal chart to be like, here's a map that could point you towards your strengths, your gifts, and, you know, what your soul is trying to be up to in this lifetime. Mm -hmm. Um, But that integration piece is really, really important because when we are not, when we are unable to integrate our own suffering, wounds, and trauma, then we move through the world, dumping that on other people. Mm. Um, and sometimes it's largely unconscious and sometimes people are doing that consciously, um, you know, from their own pain. Um, but there is what I love about healing justice is that, um, you know, part of what we're trying to do with the book is re-politicize the framework, but also recenter spirit and to mm. not back away from the spiritual nature of this work That's while something. holding that so many people in our community have been deeply harmed and abused by religious systems and structures in spiritual communities. Like those things are very real for us. It's about what is your connection to something bigger than you? Um, But to actually grapple with that tension around spirit um, in an intentional way, like Mm -hmm. we have to. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Hi everyone. I just want to pop in here really quick and remind you about our sponsor offering tree. As yoga teachers, we are our own business managers, website designers, and producers. It's a lot. 
and Offering Tree offers an all-in-one platform that makes it easy to succeed while we're doing all the things. And I'd just like to say that through this partnership with the Love of Yoga podcast, Offering Tree has shown that it's committed to supporting accessibility and equity in the yoga world. Offering Tree is a public benefit corporation, and they're driven by a mission of wellness accessibility, which we share with them at Accessible Yoga. As an Offering Tree user, you'll get uh, to join a supportive educational community, and you'll also get free webinars with top experts in wellness and entrepreneurship. And of course, you get a discount. So go to offeringtree.com backslash accessible yoga to learn more and to get your discount. Okay, let's go back to the episode. So when you say spirit, you know, I, I get all very nerdy about it because uh, yoga is a lot about a lot about spirit. We call it different things. What in your, I just want to know out of curiosity, what is your um, experience of it? Wow. That's a great question. I think that I've been um, fortunate to have studied several different traditions that kind of brought me back into something that I felt really strongly as a young person. Mm. Um, so I actually went to an Episcopal private all girls school. It's a whole nother book. It was, it was wild, but I remember having these and I'm not Christian now. Me and Jesus are cool. I'm not Christian. Um, had these profound spiritual experiences in prayers, like every morning going to school, like mm-hmm. I, I, I could feel it. Mm-hmm. I could feel it. And then, you know, I had a lot of challenges around, you know, Christianity as a system. I was like this, some of the stuff is really not aligned. And then I also, during that time, remember I like was obsessed with the moon. I would just go outside and stare at the moon. I was there at the start. I still do that. So there these things that, that evoke awe, majesty, wonder. That was my, Mm -hmm. those were my early experiences of spirit. And then I got introduced to different cosmologies and different ways that people understand spirit um, and the multiverse. And I was like, whoa, this is so cool. And some of this is deeply, deeply personal. Mm -hmm. So there's a relationship that I seek to cultivate with my own spirit. There's a relationship that I seek to cultivate with ancestors, both from my lineage and, and ancestors that um, are just like a part of my, my crew in my life. Um, and then I, I try to experience spirit and everything around me, you know? So mm-hmm. I'm also a nature boy. I lived in the Bay area for 13 years. Just, I'm like, how can you not fall to your knees with like majesty? It's just, it, this world is really glorious and really, really painful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I'm, when I'm most clear is that's how I experience spirit. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. I love that. Thank you. Thank you for, I know it was not in, in the list of questions and I, I was just so curious to hear what you had to say. So I appreciate that. It's beautiful. Um, I want to also like refer to your interview with Eddie Conway. I think you mentioned, um, you know, that he's one of your teachers and mentors where uh, in, I think it was your second or the third essay in the book, former Black Panther. And he talks about how we should not repeat the mistakes of our movement as ancestors and that we should learn from the past. And one of the things that history offers us as a gift is how to not make the mistakes of, uh, of our ancestors. What have been some of your own excavations from your movement work? I have to say, it takes a lot to to rock me. That question, I was like, "Ooh, okay, we're going there." 
Um, <laughs> and I, I think this is really important because I am 43. I'm about to be 44. And I came into this work in my late teens, early 20s. So mm. I'm middle aged, but I've been in the work for multiple decades. And yeah. uh, it's really it's been rather amazing to have been alive long enough to see certain um, cycles, not complete, but to be like, oh, here's where we are in this cycle. Mm. Um, so one of the things that I learned from Eddie and <laughs> continue to learn from Eddie is that, you know, these structures and systems of domination are actually uh, not creative. They have about four or five signature moves that they use to control and dominate, and they repeat them over and over again over time and just apply the same things to different communities. So mm -hmm. if you look at um, the violence and degradation and attempted genocide of indigenous peoples on this land, you're going to see lots of similarities to uh, chattel slavery and the enslavement of Africans brought to the Americas. You're going to see a lot of similarities between the uh, act of genocide right now in Palestine. So these things are deeply connected. These things mm -hmm. are deeply connected and you can't really befriend a monster like that. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's why, you know, when I became politicized, I came into the work of the Panthers. Um, I, I went to my first critical resistance conference when I was in college, like people who are like, actually, there's no reform of these systems. Mm -hmm. We can't reform them. If we are doing anything that even looks reformist, it's to like have us stay alive long enough so that we can actually create something different while tearing this down. Mm -hmm. And this piece around like being willing to learn from the past is so, so important. When mm -hmm. I started to learn about the Panthers and I got to be in a relationship with, with uh, Black Panther elders, uh, the first question I had, especially as a healer, was like, damn, there's a lot of trauma. Like, how? what did y'all do? How? You know? And so yeah. in that interview with Eddie, it's so interesting because, you know, he would say they weren't doing some things in that area. And I was like, you know, I, I humbly disagree, actually. There was a lot outside of even the um, programs that the Panthers did that I think were really important to the spiritual and political development of Black mm -hmm. people um, and the ways that inspired people across the globe. Mm -hmm. But I think there's this piece around we have the ability to be a couple steps ahead. So something like backlash, right? Like, you know, if for instance, trans people become more visible and get more rights and have more leadership, then we're, there's going to be backlash. Why are we surprised when that happens? Right. right? I'm all, but that I'm also surprised, right? Because there's still a part of us that like is holding on to, well, maybe there's some goodness inside of these systems of domination. There's mm -hmm. not. The goodness is in us. We have to figure out how to get that out there. <laughs> we have to mm -hmm. find other people who are who want to be in a context and the conditions that are life affirming. Um, but to actually, to continue to have deep distrust of systems of violence, yeah. you know, um, and to not fall for false solutions. And so that's mm -hmm. part of what the book is trying to do is to say, sometimes even the solutions we generate are still rooted in a lack of understanding of history and also of social movements and how movements of resistance work. Mm. And that I learned through tutelage of the Panthers and kind of other revolutionary movements, um, primarily in the U.S., but a lot of people aren't necessarily getting that education. Mm. 
Yeah, I, 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 I hear that. I, I hear that a lot of people are not getting that education. And that's why one of the things that, you know, we can do is to really continuously talk about it in, in, in languages which feel sort of accessible and meeting where the other person is at and uh, not not really throw like jargon. I think that that's very intimidating for many people. So I'm really trying to get people to, first of all, see that they already know and they're already doing enough and pushing the edges and the envelopes of people mm -hmm. where they're at. Um, which brings to me this next question, which is how do we stop ourselves from getting into the the dominant cultural space, like repeating the mistakes of the dominant culture in movement work, because I see that a lot. You know, the mm -hmm. you you talked about you talked about accountability, and you talked about making sure that we are uh, checking ourselves in our individualistic value. Um, mm -hmm. wh what are some of the ways in which you have seen that happen, and how do we um, how do we push it? push that out of our systems in some way? So this question is really important and it requires a high level of individual personal work that I don't think we're honest about. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's, it's this thing that we're grappling with. It's kind of like um, I work with organizations who are trying to integrate like racial justice into their yeah. organization. Yeah. Are you going to have a worker who's about racial justice at work and then in their personal life, don't give a fuck about racial justice. Yeah. Right. So it's like, yeah. there the, it's like, and then how much can your employer require of you in terms of your personal work? So to just like actually be yeah. inside of some of these tensions, because so much of movement work is been absorbed by the nonprofit industrial complex, exactly. we have to talk about some of those things. And then there's all kinds of work and organizing that's outside of the nonprofit industrial complex where these dynamics are still proliferating. So the first is to accept that we've all internalized these things and that it's we're, there is no real prevention. There's like, what are your strategies to stay aware? And what are your strategies for interruption and intervention? And what are your strategies for repair? Mm. Um, there's so much that transformative justice has offered us about this question. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of harm and abuse that happens in movements, right? And we have to deal with it. Like, there right. are people who are literally will never come back into movement spaces because of the harm they've experienced. I, you know, as a young person, I experienced all kinds of things. Mm. Queerphobia, transphobia, ableism, white supremacy. I was like, are you serious? <laughs> I thought I was coming here and y'all had it together. No, yeah, yeah. People are just out here peopling. So, um, yeah. but I do think we're in a moment where, and shout out to people who are younger than my uh, old ass. Young people are not are literally not tolerating things that I tolerated when I was young, and that mm -hmm. actually gives me so much hope. It's like, mm -hmm. no, we don't want raggedy elders. <laughs> no, mm -hmm. we're not gonna. We're not going to kind of acquiesce to someone who is being abusive just because they are older or they mm. have more experience. Um, mm. They're just not having it. So <laughs> I think there's a lot of work that is already happening to, mm. to shift those dynamics in our movement spaces, but it's ongoing work. So you should be asking the question, how is capitalism showing up in our organizing? Mm. How is white supremacy and for me, the bigger question is ableism because nobody's talking about ableism. Healers mm -hmm. aren't talking about ableism. Organizers aren't talking about ableism. 
therapists yeah. aren't really talking about ableism. You know, yeah. who's talking about ableism, disabled people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that, that to me would be one of the bigger gaps right now. And one of the bigger heartbreaks is people's mm-hmm. inability to see the intersection between other structures of violence and ableism. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, that's one of the biggest part of the work that Accessible Yoga does, which is talking about mm-hmm. ableism in yoga spaces. So yes. I, complete, I completely concur. Um, I want to talk about dissent also here, Erica, because you did talk about, you know, how the younger people are like pushing back and saying we're not going to like a quest to people just because they're older. And uh, that is such an important thing to kind of cultivate that sort of independent thinking. And um, as a group, as and and even even between like interpersonal relationships, Mm -hmm. um, how how is that? You know, it's how is that? in, in which what, what, what I want to say is how do we resist? How do we be effective? And how do we how how can we be intentional in our resistance given the scale of what we are seeing now? Because mm-hmm. especially, especially for me, I can say that I come from India where it's rapidly descending into totalitarianism. And uh, even here, to a certain extent, you are free to, re- you know, you're free to uh, protest, but it's still uh, what, what's yeah. happening right now in terms of, you know, uh, Palestine re- movement is is heartbreaking. Uh, yeah. Young young students are being penalized. People are losing their jobs. So how do we, as a collective community, uh, are in allyship with resistors, you know, yeah. what, what do you think? What, what can we do? So some of what Karen and I have talked a lot about before this particular flashpoint, we were thinking about um, the need for organizers, practitioners, cultural workers, kind of anybody who's investing in getting free and using healing justice as a strategy for that to really be in deep assessment of risk. So, mm-hmm. so there are moments in my life where I'm resisting from just pure human uh, response to degradation, right? Yeah. And then there are moments like we've seen right across the world where people um, have met, they've organized, they figured out how are we going to shut down this highway? How are we going to shut down this airport? What are we going to do about the folks getting arrested? Um, yeah. What is the care plans? People are going on strike. Where's the fund? to pay people who are striking right now. Right. So there, I guess what I want to offer is that um, this moment of resistance is so important. And I, my hope is that it activates and reactivates us to find our communities, our political homes, right? Mm-hmm. Again, who are you accountable to? Can't have individual people out here resisting by themselves. Yeah. We actually are so much stronger together. And when we're coordinated and yeah. not everybody has to do the same thing. In fact, we're not going to get free that way. Mm-hmm. So this is actually a beautiful moment where I it's restored some of my faith in organizing. Cause I was like, Oh, Oh, wow. Like for whatever reason, this moment got us in alignment in a way that I haven't seen in a very, very long time. And so you need to assess risk one of the things I appreciate about all the organizing around Palestine right now is people are like, stop being in your feelings, feeling guilty because you can't do this one thing. There's a ton of things that you can do. So that messaging, like shout out to the comps people for that. Like that messaging has been so helpful. Do what you can from where you are and take risks based on where you are. Mm. Um, 
also be thoughtful about depending on how you're positioned risk functions differently if you're black (laughs) than if you're not black (laughs) you know what i mean risk functions differently if you're disabled or if you're non-disabled so it's like very very important to again situate yourself and i would say more strategic resistance is Mm. where i want us to go yeah and that doesn't mean that you know when we just have these like acts of defiance that come from our spirit right and probably come from our ancestors those are good too Mm. and how do we sustain this for the long haul? And how do we also connect what's happening in Palestine with what's happening everywhere? Because literally this moment is like, if you didn't understand interdependence, I mean, COVID should have taught us about interdependence, but it didn't, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe this moment will. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I still hear you. Uh, in, in, Given what we are seeing, you know, the scale of what we are seeing with genocide, war, climate justice, all of the things. And um, how do you take care of yourself? What are your practices of, you know, I, I'm, I'm getting a sense that you, you, it's a very spiritual practice and all of the things that you named already. Is there anything else you want to share with our listeners about what are some of the things that you go to constantly, consistently? Mm-hmm. So this question is so, it's a question I get a lot. And it's also like, it's a good question for the moment because I have never uh, been able to kind of witness a live stream of genocide before in my life. So exactly kind of, like these conditions, I, I am in my spiritual practice regularly. And I was like, oh, I don't have a spiritual framework to understand this. Like this is 100%. I, I'm fucked up right now. I don't understand. Um, And so that has brought me to speaking directly to particular ancestors. So Harriet Tubman is an ancestor who walks really closely with me and with this project. Um, I've been talking a lot to Eddie Conway. I've been kind of reaching for other um, people who have lived through things uh, that were of this magnitude Mm. and still stayed the course. Mm. And a lot of the work that I'm doing, both in my organization, um, but also in other work, is supporting people to find their spiritual fortitude, grounding, anchoring during this time. And like, where's your resilience really going to come from to meet this moment? Because my self-care is great. I'm like, yeah, I do. The the self-care list, I've, I've been great at that, but that's actually not enough. Yeah. That's not enough. And it's really about, um, you know, I think some of what has been so in, like amazing about watching the resistance on the ground in Gaza is people being really clear, like the freedom we're fighting for, we might not see this in our lifetime, Yeah, you know, and death is not an ending. And like that kind of like spiritual, like I essentially I've been trying to put myself through a mini like spiritual warriorship boot camp because I'm like, what does it mean to be built for these times? I would like mm-hmm. to be built for these times. So that requires that I do certain things and it requires that I avoid other things. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, especially as a deeply sensitive person, as a healer, as somebody mm-hmm. who's deeply intuitive, I'm like, there's just certain energies I can't be around right now yeah. if I'm going to yeah. do what I need to do. So there's like a high level of discipline that I've called into this year because I'm like, I think I'm someone who's supposed to be alive right now to fight and to create and to birth. 
But if I didn't have that clarity, I don't know what I would do. And I got that clarity from my practice. And I got that clarity from my ancestors tapping me repeatedly on the shoulder, being like, get it together, you mm-hmm. know? But mm-hmm. that was a relationship that I've cultivated over time. So it's not going to be the same for everyone, but there is this piece around like, what helps to gather you, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And, and also, if you don't have that, then what's the right role for you at this time? What I'm trying to have us avoid, well, this is a very traumatic moment. So we're all activated. We're all right. triggered. Right. Everybody's nervous systems are just, I mean, fried, right? Mm-hmm. How are we doing the things that we need to do to co-regulate and to self-regulate so that we can be as strategic as possible and so that we can also not take each other out in the process of getting free? Mm-hmm. So if you are not able to show up in certain ways, how are we like creating space for rest and respite? How are we staggering? Mm-hmm. There are folks who are leading work right now who are not okay, you know, they're not okay. And we can't just keep going. Can't just keep going. And then there's times where I'm not okay. And I'm like, Oh, I can't, I can't do it. And then I rest, I reground and I come back. So if you don't see how long this fight is, then we're not going to have the resources to sustain this resistance. Mm. Um, And so for me, it's timings for me. It's about like having people around me who will tell me you're not okay. Yeah. And you probably shouldn't be doing what you're doing right now in terms of your job. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, yeah. that's, that's real. And that's not a personal failing. Yeah. That's, that's not a personal failing. Um, yeah. That is the most human thing that could ever happen is you mm. are overwhelmed by mm. the horrors of this time and you need to grieve or you need to rage or you need to rest or all of the above. Yeah. Beautiful. Love that. Love that. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. And uh, we are coming to the end of our podcast conversation. I know I can continuously talk to you because you bring so much uh, depth and wisdom. Is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners? Um, Well, first, thank you for this conversation. Thank you for reaching out. Thank you for the community that you're holding and building. Um, and the conversations that I know you're stewarding in this moment are so important. Um, and I think the other piece is quite simply to find your work and to do it. And it does, you know, it really doesn't have to be what everybody else is doing, you know, Mm. like I think I'm thinking a lot about folks for whom this work of resistance and this work of liberation is like very much like with their children, in their families, in their very local community. You know, we're not all going to be on the bridge shutting it down. And, right. that, and that's okay, right? Um, but to actually think about like based on where you have power, based on where you have privilege, based on where you have knowledge, based on where you have a community of accountability, where can you intervene? Wonderful. I think this is the most one of the most important messages that uh, that you can share and that we can we all need to listen to time and time and again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Erica. I look forward to continue to learning from you, reading what you have to offer. And I'm so grateful for your generosity in sharing both in the book and uh, right now in the conversation. So thank you so much. I'm really, really grateful. Thank you. It's been an honor. Thank you for listening to the Love of Yoga podcast. 
an offering from Accessible Yoga Association. Please support our work by becoming an ambassador or by visiting our online studio at accessibleyoga.org.